Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is episode 54, right? This is a new guy in here. Hello, this is Tristan, a new guy. And, Pero, let me tell you. Let's start, Pero, let me tell you. I'm ready as I'll ever be. Aww. Mira, esto es... ¿Cómo se llama esto? Una... Oh, it's a tambourine. I don't know how it's oh. called in Spanish. A tambourine. Un tambourine. What? Are we on? Yes, we are. Well, everyone, <laughs> welcome to episode 54. Yes, you just heard the musical stylings of Darien Jesus. And, okay, not for nothing, <laughs> but wasn't that intro cute? I'm going to say not just because he's your son and one of my favorite little kids, but yes, it was. I'm not biased. At all. That's like when he was born, I'd be like, mira, if the kid is ugly, you could say he's ugly. Yeah, he wasn't, thank God, I don't have to lie to you. No, no, pero es algo chiquito. And you know, it's funny, because people get very offended of like, oh my God, don't call my baby ugly. It's like, your baby is going to turn out to be cute. Oh, I tell my sister all the time, Aiden, my middle nephew, was not cute when he was little. Yeah. You don't want to peak out zero. Yeah, exactly. He's adorable now. Yeah, you don't but... want to peak that young. So, so how's everybody been? Oh, I'm exhausted. Yeah. Why are you exhausted? Chico, because you and I haven't stopped for like almost two weeks. I know. Film festivals and Calle Ocho and Carnaval I feel like the and... Miami Film Festival, <laughs> and thank you so much for inviting us, yeah. was so like, we were so enveloped in it. Like, I from know. The red carpets <laughs> yeah. to all the movies yeah. to the parties. It was like, oh my God, we're like totally like complaining. Uh, we sound like... I know. First world problems. Yeah, first world problems. We sound like <laughs> Nikki and ¿Cómo se llama? And Paris. Paris and Nicole Richie on the Surreal Life. Miami Film Festival is hot. I never saw a single episode of that garbage. You never saw even like the first. No, episode? I didn't. No. I, I've always thought that the Hilton sisters are the most toxic and disgusting Nikki duo no ever. I comparatively. But speaking. you know what though? I always, whenever I get mad or I, whenever I. Start to think crap about the Kardashians mm-hmm. as much as I. Right. You start thinking about Kylie? No, as much as I don't like the Kardashians, I always think, it well, it could be worse. It could be the Hiltons. We could have gotten the Hiltons. We could have had true. the Hiltons. 
So That's very true. Anyway, so before we talk about anything else, so <laughs> this week was the end of The Bachelor. Sure. So what I happened was no, okay. So what happened I've was never I've never seen The Bachelor. I don't right. care to see The Bachelor. Okay. I don't understand why people see The Bachelor. Right. I don't know anything about The Bachelor, but because I watched The say, View, say The Bachelor once more. The Bachelor, okay. but because I watched The View, I know that, that there was a synergy that there was this whole thing about Colton, The Bachelor, okay. who he jumped a fence and went after the girl he loved, and why was she on the other side of the fence? Because he had dumped her already it happens and he the two girls he had left you know he had to pick one of them right he didn't didn't pick any of them so he picked her even though he let her go yes even though he had let her go and i'm like i don't understand that sounds like how anybody can watch this show and believe it's real now if you want to watch it for shits and giggles kind of like kind of like how i watched i love new york some years back on vh1 you know if you want to watch it for shits and giggles, go knock yourself out. But I don't understand, especially all the women that watch this show, thinking that it's true love. And then the, I know that the twist in this season was that he was, a virgin. he was a virgin. And then they're always given the fantasy suites. Oh, okay. Yeah, towards like the end when I guess he has a certain once, amount one, left. Right, once he's spent... Two and a half weeks with everyone who's in love with him. Right. They give them the fantasy suite so they could spend okay. a night. And, you is know, it like the Miami Princess? Yes, yeah, so like the Miami Princess okay. Hotel. They have like a champagne um, jacuzzi. Okay, and all got that. it. So, Mirrors on the, on the ceiling. Exactamente. Right. So um, I, I, I think he didn't use a fantasy suite because he's a virgin. So I, I just, I don't understand. But but obviously. Do you think he played some tiddlywinks? Oh. Whoops, now. Thank you Sorry, for Sorry, I can't <laughs> Thank go. Thank you. Okay. Whoops, now. And here I am reading something about whooping cough. <laughs> on, on my, I just, you know what? If somebody out there, one of our listeners, understands The Bachelor or, or The Bachelorette, and... Or if one of The Bachelors or Bachelorettes is listening and, and wants and, to explain. And you, you find the appeal of the show, you know, let us know. Write us. Because I certainly, you know, I have an open mind. And, you know, as I've said before, there are a lot of things that I don't subscribe to that I'm not a fan of but i could be like okay i kind of see the appeal right, even right. though it's not my shtick right. and god knows we have our own guilty pleasures and the fact that you know I, f- I find that show is overly racist is it okay let's talk about the diversity of the bachelor it's just sluts right no but even in the bachelor and the bachelorette they had one black bachelorette and they advertised that like it was a super bowl commercial <laughs> you know and it's like it's like you would think that you know after having you know five thousand seasons of The right, Bachelor right. and The Bachelorette, there would be some more diversific you know more diverse. No, they've had one black bachelorette and they had one Hispanic bachelor who was blonde with blue eyes. Oh, that Juan Pablo, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, where's where's the diversity in this show? I mean, you want to talk about a That's show? True. I mean, I mean, come on. I'm, but I don't know. I I you know what. To quote our cousins, our good old friends, Mamas and Merlot, Merlot, I'm going to call that white nonsense. (laughs) But again, if somebody's out there and wants to prove me wrong or wants to enlighten us on The Bachelor, go right ahead. Actually, we're we're working to coordinate, listeners, another episode with the Mamas. But this time, I refuse to not have all three of them. I know, right? We have to have all three Mamas this time. So we're going to need more wine. Anyway, not a problem. Speaking of white nonsense, <laughs> so one of the biggest 
controversies. This was a good week for Jesse Smollett, but a bad week for Aunt Becky. Uh, well, she still has the good hair. She always have the good hair. Right. Becky with the good hair. But um, but yeah, Jesse Smollett is probably like, yeah, bitches. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> so as you guys have probably know, and this is going to be, I guess, our marquee. Um, yes. Oh, I like that. Our marquee topic of conversation. Um, there was the largest college shakedown of, um, in terms of admissions, uh, fraud admissions. Right. In the history of the United States, it happened this year, which the FBI is calling the Varsity Blues. I love it. I, 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 I mean, I love whoever came up with that. They should have totally made the announcement while holding a pig. You know that James Vanderbeek tweeted about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your life. <laughs> so the so pretty much what happened was they caught this whole there was this whole sting operation. How did this even get on somebody's radar? Okay, well that's... I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. explain that. Okay. So. I, I believe like a year and a half or two years ago, there was the athletic director, I forget of what school, mm-hmm. that she... Carlos Albizu. I, I forget what school it was, that she got caught okay. accepting bribes. So then, um, then she started working for the FBI as an informant. Okay, got it. And then that went up, that, that information went up to the guy who who currently set up the current scheme that brought everybody everybody down now. His name is Rick Singer. So Rick Singer has been an informant for the FBI um, since, I believe, November, December of 2018. So he's been already doing it for a few months. So to kind of encapsulate the, the, the issue here. So people were paying uh, large amounts of money to have their children be admitted into some of the most elite schools in the country. And among those people is <laughs> our dear Lori Lachlan, who I love from Full House, um, and Becky, and Felicity Huffman. Two of the most innocuous human beings ever. Right. Like, and, what controversy and would they ever have, right? There were also, uh, I believe, 30 to 35 additional parents who were charged. It's about 50 people, isn't it? Yeah, uh, 30 to 35 additional parents who were charged. Obviously, they're the two biggest names, right. as well as a slew of admissions um, personnel, mm-hmm. coaches, um, yeah, this isn't just proctors, right. proctors for um, the, the SAT exams, right. a, a whole slew of other people. So basically, what they were doing was, through this man, Rick... Um, uh, Snyder, they were. Um, I'm say Rick Case. <laughs> Rick Case Honda. Yeah. Um, they were paying this man whatever amount of money to get their kids in schools. And some of the ways that they would do it is, for example, in the case of Lori Lachlan or mm-hmm. Becky, uh, her daughter didn't have the grades to get, I believe it was to USC. Yeah, USC. Mm-hmm. And they, they got her in through the athletics program for, for crew, crew. Yeah. for rowing yeah. and the girl had never rowed so from what i understand they like superimposed her yeah. on a like actual like stock crew picture basically to, it's like when tv guy put oprah's head on Anne margaret's body <laughs> to get her in and she got in through the athletics department so obviously like the head of athletics or the coach mm-hmm. was paid off handsomely right. to get her in um in the case of felicity huffman from what I heard, from what I read, the allegations are that they paid a proctor. They paid they paid this man um, 
to have her take the SAT at an off-site location yes. where it was easier for them to manipulate the setting and have a proctor... Who would either coach or give the answers. Or give the answers right. to, and or therefore, time or, right, therefore right. enhancing her SAT score right. and getting her into the college. So this kind of... I think it's interesting that they only charged Felicity Huffman and not William H. Macy. I know, right? But, I was thinking that as well. But in the case of well. Lori Lachlan, it's her and her husband. And her husband, right. And William H. Macy is in a lot of the, the yes. evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's why. It's weird. So it's interesting. They probably don't have any... Because with I know with Lori Lachlan, they have like... like um, Didn't she like They recorded her. Well, they recorded, she they tapped her. email. Yeah, and well. they tapped her. So maybe they, they have evidence, but not enough to charge her. But anyway, so this... Did you hear how much... I, I hate to keep interrupting you, but did you hear how much they set her bail at? Becky's? Yeah. How much? A million dollars. Yeah. That's surprising. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's for surprising. For somebody who starred in a sitcom on TGIF. No, 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 but that's surprising because she's for, not a... This is not a... She's not a flight risk. No, yeah, but, but the she's problem, filming in Vancouver. Yeah, but the problem is that they're going to make an example out of this. Yeah. So, anyway, back to what I was saying. So, this uncovered this whole scheme that ha has been going on of parents and people that have money and influence about getting their kids into schools, into yep. elite schools, and having them obviously bypass the more traditional route of application. Well, the actual rigor of applying. Right. So this opens a conversation not only so much in terms of the fraud, because this is fraud, but this also opens up the greater conversation in terms of so this obviously opens up the conversation in terms of money and privilege and white nonsense. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, I hate the phrase white privilege, but this is the epitome of, of white privilege. So, you know, it's h harder and harder and harder to get into college these days. Um, schools have become it. extremely selective. And just the entire, I feel that the entire college system is rigged. and it's All of it, you think? All of it. All of it. All of it, because it, it's, it's a circle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. You know, obviously, you, you have you have safeguards like affirmative action mm -hmm. and diversity numbers right, right. that colleges have in order to, quote-unquote, make sure they're diverse. But think about the totality of a college admissions, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to have, if you're going to take the SAT, right. you're going to get the best SAT prep you have. If you're struggling with your grades, you're going to get a tutor. Right. Um, there's people who um, write college entrance exams. I mean, that's totally legal. That's, there's nothing fraudulent about that. Mm -hmm. from, from that to people who are legacy to people that um, donate money to have buildings right. and hallways, what is the common denominator of all that? It's money. Okay. I because, was going to say, like, you know very expensive little sandwiches at parties but <coughs> no because i mean seriously yeah. if, if you come to think about it if you are a working class family mm -hmm. even like if ours. your kid is brilliant you're probably I, I didn't take an sat prep course the Hell sat no. prep course that i took was, was at school I, it was at school actually you yeah. know what it was i went to the public library and i checked out an sat prep book because oh, I didn't even do that. my parents couldn't buy an SAT, give, pay, you know. The, and they're expensive. They're hell. super expensive. Just the book to take it by yourself. They're generally over $1,000. My parents didn't have the money to do that. So if you're working class, you know, and let's say you have a kid that has potential, you probably don't have the money to pay an SAT prep course. And, you know, and that's something that even if you're smart, you will benefit from. Right. Right. You probably don't have the money to, um, uh, you know, get tutors if you're falling behind on certain subjects. Mm -hmm. You probably don't have the money. You certainly don't have the money to have somebody 
do college essays for you. Right. You know, and so on. Let alone do you have the money to pay a building? Do you have a, build, a building on your name? Right. But what I'm saying is that this goes into this whole entire circular, you know, issue that mm-hmm. it's rigged. It's rigged, and it favors people that are wealthy, that are well connected, and usually are white. I see where you're coming from, but I mean, as somebody who went to, you know, went to college, went to university, and I got there through my own merits, and I mean, I got a scholarship, so it's not like, you know what I mean? I can't sit here and say, yes, it's rigged, because I didn't experience it. Um, but I don't know. I just think it's, I think it might also just be one of those things where obviously everything you're saying is true, but I think there's also just things that get blown up in the media mm-hmm. and gar- garner ganner mm-hmm. garner more attention and it reinforces these arguments which are valid but i don't think tell the whole story well i don't think they tell the whole story in so far that their kids who are not privileged in any way shape or form and still get into elite schools right right but it's harder for them well absolutely and and and, and it shouldn't be that's the argument. Well, I mean, I, I, again, I don't so, disagree. So the, but... the, the argument is that the system is, is unfairly balanced. Uh, it's not balanced. Well, it's, who it's... said life is fair? Well, okay, right. But we're, <laughs> but we're talking about education here. We're talking about education yeah, but it's here. it's higher education that nobody guarantees. Because really, they only guarantee you up until Right, nobody school. nobody guarantees, but you, you don't... The, higher education on the forefront should not be something that is available to people that are elite. Because, again, mm-hmm. legacy, right? Who's legacy at Harvard, right? If your parents went to Harvard, your parents were probably did well right. or they were connected. And if they went to Harvard, they probably are doing well now mm-hmm. and hence can't afford, you know, to get you a tutor. Google. Another thing, another thing. These these elite schools, or not any, uh, just not only elite schools, just any good school. Any, it's hard to get into a state school. Any, any good school. Let's talk about extracurricular activities. And it's not any more like, oh, I played baseball for 10 years. It's right. like, okay, where did you intern at in high school? In high school, yeah. You know, uh, have you been a fellow? Have you, you know, have, have you been in lacrosse, in crew? I mean, I mean, who in Miami in any working class high school in the suburbs does any of those sports? Like well, that's why you go to Miami Dade. Well, but but <laughs> I'm, teasing. I'm teasing, right? But that's that's and another thing I want to I, I want to bring. Also, this... you were saying the name of that school wrong, by the way. What? It's Harvard. Okay, and the Jesse. You know what? They didn't even accept Jesse Spano. They didn't accept Jesse Spano, and I mean, you know, clearly she's smart. So that's that's it. We're gonna end there. We're gonna right, end the topic accepted, right they, here. They accepted Zach. Because he's Aryan looking. You know what? You said an Emmy. <laughs> but actually, let me let me throw this little tidbit at you. I love tidbits. So one of the things that I've read in the last couple of days since this blew up mm-hmm. is the increasing, um, just unsustainable competition that colleges have had. It's crazy. It's crazy to get into college now. Hell, it's crazy to get into preschools nowadays. Yes. But, but let's talk about our two schools. I went to Florida International University. You went to the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. Okay, I and I think you and I were not too f- too different in terms of our grade point averages. We were both in the AP Honors program. We did very well in school. Yeah. Um, I, I I forget my exact GPA, but for argument's sake, I think you and I were well within the top seven percent 
of the school. Okay, I'll take okay? it. Okay, so, well within. I, I, I think, I, th- I want to say that my unweighted GPA was like a 3.5, which is like like an A. So yours was probably somewhere there because you and yeah. I always did the same except that one time that I got an A. I'm still not over it. I got an A in the test for Beowulf after not reading the book and you did not get I an A. I got a B and I, I read B. like half the book. I'm still not over it. Gonna turn 40 this year. That was when we were 18. Still mm-hmm. not over it. Yeah. So anyway, but aside from that. So nowadays, and you got into UM and you got a scholarship. I got into FIU and got a scholarship as well. Nowadays, mm-hmm. FIU, as of 2018, mm-hmm. FIU admits only 41.9% wow. of its applicants. Their current average unweighted GPA okay. for FIU is a 3.7. So we would have gotten in. An A. The average SAT score for FIU is... I can't find the info here on the SAT score. But the thing with SAT scores is that SAT scores changed since we took them. So they it's have. not the, num- the number now, like um, it's 1140, a, it's not a let's say. It's not the same as ours because now there's like another, there's another. An 1139. Okay. Okay. But it, the 1139 now, it's not averaged the same way as when we took the SAT. That's at okay. FIU. So I'll take your word for it. At the University of Miami... I don't remember what my SAT score was. As of 2018, it was 32.1. Wow. Okay. The average um, the average GPA was a 3.8. Okay. And the average SAT was a 1240. Neither of us would get into our respective colleges right now. Nope. And that was 20 years ago. And that was 20 years ago. Or we would be in a waiting list or well, something or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were at the top of our class. Wow. We were at the top of our class with a bunch of extracurricular yeah, activities because you... I was president of a club. So were you. I was a Silver Knight nominee. I was editor-in-chief of the yearbook. I did community service. I had like 500 hours of community service. Yeah. I, I set up the community. I, yeah, yeah, we yeah. both... We, we were well-rounded as, yes, as high Yes, I mean, we, yeah. we had a... We had a good resume when we right. graduated high school. We just didn't go through. We would not get into our respective colleges right now. How wow. about them apples? Wow. Is that fair? Because it's not like, you know, University of Miami or FIU or Harvard. True. They're good schools. But, they're, right, right, right. They're but good we're schools. not talking Duke. F- FIU, talking. FIU is a state school. UM is private. But, I mean, UM is a great school. So, FIU is FIU a good is school, a school, too. Um, it's, not, it's not Harvard. We wouldn't be able to get in. So what the hell is it for Harvard? <laughs> Shit. So that's but that is the argument. If 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 a state school mm-hmm. is so hard to get into, and then like for example, FIU brags. I mean, these are bragging rights. You could put it. You could go to their website and find it. Mm-hmm. How they reject so many numbers of valedictorians. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Because schools want to be more selective. Because when they're selective, their prestige goes up. True. So when their prestige goes up, they could charge more. Okay. It's a, it's a circle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a cycle. Yeah, yeah. So then, you know, if you're, you know, Carlitos over here, who you do well, you know, you're not necessarily the... Well, but hell, they're even the valedictorians are getting rejected. Right. <laughs> right. So right. if you're Carlito over here, then, you know, maybe you have like a high B average. Right. Right. You don't have to have an a, a, a solid A average. Maybe you have a high B or maybe a low A. You do well and all that stuff. You can't even get into FIU. Now, is that... 
straight from high school into FIU? Or yes. is that... A, so yeah. the numbers might be a little different for those who go to community college first. Yeah, but okay, no, no, no. I'm, just, I'm just asking right, but for, a community the, for college, the sake of the of community the college is going to take everybody. I, I didn't count community college because a community college is going to. I mean, it's a community college. It's right. going to take anybody with a pulse, right. and that's nothing against community colleges whatsoever. You know, uh, Miami Dade Community College here in South it's Florida. It's not a community college anymore. It's Miami Dade College. Miami Dade College is a great college. When it was a community college, it was a great yeah. community college. Yeah. It's nothing against community college. I'm talking about the regular. Yeah, just, you know, Universities, universities. Universities and colleges. It, it, it's, it's terrible. So that's why I say that it's, you know, when you go back to who is the one getting in the top of this, you know, people with money, people that have influence, people that are, you know, can afford to do a $400,000 donation to a school. 500000 for Becky. Full House reruns have been very good to them. Yes, and Fuller House. And Fuller House. And you know, and and Massimo. And Massimo. And Massimo. This, and Massimo that, I mean, yeah. Her husband is Massimo. People forget yeah. this. Yeah. No, <laughs> and she has Hallmark movies. Well, she's on a Hallmark series now, too. Yes. Yeah. I wonder that... You know, actually, what I was going to say was that I, I, I read earlier today, because I kept... I kept seeing her face, mm-hmm. and every time I online that I would see is they would put her face, and I would wonder why, because I do think Felicity Huffman is a bigger star. But the bigger name... Felicity- Recognition-wise, is no, Lori Loughlin. No, what I read was it's because of her image. Well, but that's what I'm, that's what I meant. Like everybody knows Aunt Becky. Yeah, because of her clean-cut, right. squeaky image. Right. You know, from everything she's ever done. So right. it's more of like, it's like a what? Bob Saget was, you know, caught for murder. Yeah, but we know Bob Saget has a dirty side to him. Yeah, but he's from still his Danny. You know? So I, you know, this is something that. We actually talked about in our very first episode. You wow. know, remember I went off on income disparity and oh, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. and 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 again, this is a topic that is very very near and dear to me because you know, you and I have talked about this not on air, but we've talked about it among our friends. We actually talk off air? We do. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was in high school, you know, my parents could not afford a teacher, a, a, a tutor. tutor. You know, my parents I was in charge of everything in terms of my school. Uh, you know, when I needed to do a science project, I would tell my mom, hey, I need to go to the library, uh, the public library, and I need, you know, and I would look up science experiments. Okay. When I needed to buy my tri-board, mom, yeah. you need to take me to Cinque We didn't have the internet back then, kids, and, so I had to go to the library. And buy me the tri-board, my mom wouldn't ask any questions. You know? <laughs> that was all me self-taught. Why? Because I knew that my parents didn't have the money to get a tutor or get somebody to help me my parents didn't speak english so they couldn't even help me there so what was the alternative so what was the alternative i fail i remember that when i just couldn't figure something out i would call dial a teacher from channel channel 17 dial a teacher so i mean and and all of our friends we've all talked about how all of our friends have had similar experiences right because that's what you had to do. Now, all these kids, you know, they're growing up in these privileged households where they have anything that they want. Their parents have money and influence. Of course, they're going to get into an elite school. But you and I have talked about this before. Oh, yeah, que casualidad that all these actors and all these, like, people from Hollywood, they're all so smart that they could get into, like, Harvard and Yale. Like, what a coincidence, right, that they're so smart. Or all these, like, rich, influential people, all their kids get into, like top schools it's like wow it's like what a coincidence you know what the moral of the story is what if you your husband and your twins live in the attic of a house you too can save enough money to spend five hundred thousand dollars to send your child to mm-hmm. to school especially if you're living in san francisco exactly but i mean and i and i know 
from personal reasons of you know having people in my life at one point or another close to me that were in this realm of of elite schools and you know that came from that prep school money and influence and being well connected it, it's stop bragging about your time with the kennedys <laughs> it's it's like a club you know it, it's 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 like a club it's like you know i bet you none of the people that your family hung out with <laughs> growing up you know limpiaban casa or were mechanics and all that but that's normal to them because that they is don't know anything else. that is their circle you know and that's the biggest problem with uh white privilege is that they don't see that it's white privilege, but well, yeah. or white nonsense as our white friends at, um... uh, at Mamas and Merlot. Well, you know, you know who would absolutely agree with us on every single topic we've just discussed, Demon. specifically white privilege and white nonsense. Demon. This week's guest. Oh yes, yes, we have the privilege of having author Daniel Jose Older, and not the white privilege, not the white privilege, the the brown privilege, Latino privilege, Hispanic, Latinx, yeah, the general people privilege, non-white privilege, the non-white privilege. It would not check the box on the census. Um, of chatting with him, he's an author, written some supernatural type books. He's got a book coming out in November, uh, it's like magical realism ties into the Cuban Revolution. He's half Cuban; his mom is Cuban, and you said it perfectly. After actually, we once we finished speaking with him, you were like, "He is the definition of woke." Yeah, and I think. You put it, you hit the nail on the head. Well, that, and if you think I just went a rant now about the education <laughs> system and white privilege, that man threw a wrench at the literary world and yep. it's white nonsense. Yep. <laughs> I mean, they changed the trophy because of him, yep. but you'll hear it in the interview. Yep. So here comes our interview with Daniel Jose. Welcome back, listeners. As we promised, we're here with Daniel Jose Oled, uh, author, fantasy writer, really, and he's he's also working on something that's, I guess, still in the realm of fantasy. It's magical realism, but you know, a little a little less uh, a little less about the, the supernatural and and fantasy. I think uh, coming up in the next couple couple months. But thank you so much for joining us, uh, Daniel. Thank you. It's my pleasure to Welcome be here. Welcome on to Pedro. Let me tell yes, you. Yes, sir. Hey. <laughs> Uh, so first and foremost, just because we got to represent, Daniel's also a fellow Cuban American. So just you know, you know, it's just it's, it's it's what it's the way it is. So Daniel, I mean, your debut, your as I say, your debut album, your debut novel <laughs> came out in 2015, which was, um, if yeah. I remember correctly, Half Resurrection Blues, which is part That's of the correct. Bone Street Rumba novel series. Yep. And I gotta say, I actually. I didn't read the book. I listened to it on mm-hmm. Audible, so I feel like I've already been talking to you for a bit. Oh, that is my voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! The minute that you hit, that we hit you up on Skype, I was like, that voice sounds very, very, very familiar. <laughs> very familiar. But yes. what I think many people might not know is that you were up until what 2014, you were an EMT. How do you Paramed- make that transition? A paramedic, actually. A paramedic. Sorry, apologies. Yeah. How do you That's make right. that transition from? Man- you know, paramedic. No, to... Nobody even knows the difference, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. But um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead with your question. No, 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 no. How do you, how do you you know how did you make that transition? Is it something that you had always wanted to be a writer, and you said, you know what, to hell with uh, it. Yeah. You know, hasta aquí llegué, and and I'm making that transition, or was it more gradual? It was definitely gradual. It was a process. Actually, for a lot of that period, um, I was really focused more on music. So I was composing, and I was I put a band together, and um, I was doing kind of like different gigs, writing music for um, choreographers and filmmakers mm-hmm. and puppeteers, and like lots of people who could not pay me very well. And so I was like, <laughs> you know what? 
because I had to, you know, pay the musicians to perform on the track and everything else. And I was like, this is literally never going to get me off the ambulance, which was a job I loved. But I also knew like it wasn't what I wanted to do for my whole life, because even though I didn't know exactly what the medium was going to be, I always knew I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know if it was going to be music, film or what okay. um, I suspected writing, but I wasn't sure. And then it was really kind of out of that process that I was like, if I actually it was blogging kind of. And if you. Because I would get home from a, a, a ridiculous night on the ambulance and I would just blog about it. And it would take me like 20 minutes, you know, just like write up some stuff. And then people were like, this is great, man. And I was like, this is so easy. And then I was like, if I just made some shit up, this would be fiction. <laughs> and then I was like, if I keep doing that, that would it. be a novel. You know, and that really like demystified the process for me. And it's funny that you read or that you listened to Half Resurrection Blues first because if you go to my blog and you read some of those old entries from my ambulance years, that's the same voice of Carlos. Like very clearly, like you can tell that I was just like, this is what it's like to be me. But now there's dead people around. You know, what I mean? like, well, it's a very working clear the, transition from I one think, to the next. But, but I think working on the ambulance, you were around a couple of half dead people a lot. I'm sure. I was definitely exactly. And that's the other piece is like it's it's the it's the definitely the death. But it's also like the bureaucracy of life and death which is what the Council of the Dead really represents, and dealing with like, you know, just the paperwork and the business end and the politics of being, you know, a New York City paramedic, which all is part of the job, unfortunately, all that bullshit. And I was like, man, this can't be life. You know, this can't even be death. This is crazy. <laughs> now, you said that you were, you were blogging um, and writing about your experiences. Prior yeah. to this, did you ever were you did you ever think that you had the ability of, of being a good writer was writing ever a medium that maybe not even as a profession just like in high school as an outlet right, right. you used yeah. or yeah or... i've always loved writing i've definitely always loved writing and i and at different times in my life I, I did flirt with the idea of it um like right at towards the end of high school and in college some i was definitely like i want to write but i also want to experience the world and understand like write from a point of view of experience and not just uh, from like things I read in books, um, which is a large part why I became a paramedic, you know, it was, it's a great job. It helped me pay the rent, but it also like put me out in the world in the middle of other people's crises in a way that was invaluable to my writing life. And also I want to say like, not just as a, as a witness, but as an active participant. And I think sometimes I knew that going in, like I didn't just want a job that would have me looking at things and recording them but really um, involved and invested in them in a different way. Because I think as artists and writers, we can get trapped in this idea that we're like outside the world taking notes. And that's never true, um, but that's a myth that we kind of play into sometimes. And, I, and you know, and I've also been an organizer for most of my life, and that's always a really important aspect of, of what I do. So it was kind of, being a paramedic was kind of a great combination of like being, you know, in the midst of people's problems and also trying to be a part of, of helping them. So you were a community, you've also uh, worked uh, in terms of being a community organizer. Yeah, doing a lot yeah. of work around um, gender violence and race and intersectionality. Back before um, intersectionality was like the cool hashtag on Twitter, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, we were, you know, doing a lot of work around getting those different worlds in the, in the same room together because that was pretty hard to do, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Like, Folks just didn't want to have those conversations across the board. For the most part, it was hard to really get into the nitty gritty of like gender and race um, in, in the nonprofit industry and stuff like that. So that was a lot of the work that um, we were involved with. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I, I thought of as I was listening to you read uh, yeah. your, your novel is, you know, the, the protagonist is 
not dead, not alive. You know, he straddles the two worlds. And yeah. immediately, you know, the fact that he's Puerto Rican, I think at one point it's it, you even say something to the effect of like, well, they told me I'm Puerto Rican. You know, they, they, it wasn't even like he remembers his life. But, you know, it's always do you find was it on purpose? You know, just you're always straddling like, am I American? Am I Hispanic? Am I this? Am I that? Was that? Part yeah, of it? yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely the, the central kind of like metaphor and poetry behind that whole series or particularly Carlos's struggle, because as the series moves on, it breaks into other characters and their arcs and their relationships to the kind of larger conflict. But Carlos himself being an in-betweener is very much about what it means to be, you know, of... It's funny because when I was first grappling with a lot of that stuff, I thought it was because I'm of mixed heritage, because my mom is Cuban and my dad is Jewish. And, okay. you know, white Jewish. And um, that's complicated, you know what I mean? And and then as I started talking to other Latinos, it was like, wow, we, a lot of us have similar conversations, you know, even people who, who have both parents who are Latino. There's a lot of um, kind of in-between space that folks I- inhabit. Yeah, we um, talk about that all the time. I think, yeah. I think particularly like brown folks like in this country, you know. And I think that's an important conversation to have. And it was one that I wanted to have on a fictional plane um, without it being like a direct metaphor. You know what I mean? It's more right. about the emotional metaphor than the like, oh, like the dead people equal this side of things and the, and the live people are this side. Like, it's not that simple. It's not, nothing is that simple, right? But it is about being having access to many spaces and also not feeling at home in many spaces, but having to then find home wherever you go. And it, that's kind of the conflict. That's perfectly said because that's something that here on, on the podcast in previous episodes, um, we've talked about extensively how when, in our case, being Cuban-American, and, right. you know, we're kind of light-skinned, um, we kind of mm-hmm. straddle two different worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. obviously we're, we're American because we were either born or raised here, but at the same time our Cuban heritage runs strong. So what you said it sums it up perfectly. Like, you you really don't feel exactly at home in either and and right. and, and right. It, where you feel comfortable you kind of have to create that space many times where you exactly. feel 100 percent comfortable exactly. and, so and that's, that's like something that really related to us oh go ahead no go no ahead. that's something in your writing that really struck us good that's great i'm glad because that's really what it's about at so many levels and carlos has these moments throughout the series where he's like what is home? And every once in a while, something will strike him as like being home. And for him, usually it's seeing like the dead and the living interact on some level, because those are the two parts of him that are literally at war at different times. And, you know, I think for us, it's a question of like, what does that mean? And it's been different spaces, you know, that, that accept us in different ways, you know. But I think also part of this conversation is like also recognizing like that there's a tremendous power to that. And that sometimes that power is very toxic too. Like we we inhabit a certain place of both oppression and privilege. And so that's also been an important part of like, and there's parts where Carlos gets checked on that. Like he also has privilege. And, you know, I think as non-black Latinos, we have to recognize that and deal with it very upfront. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that we're not white, you know, and but right. there's all these like very complex overlapping layers of power and privilege that are involved in who we are. It's complicated. <laughs> it is. It surely is. And like the, what makes it more complicated is the language of it 
is still very much, well, is always in flux. You know, like True. up until a certain point in American history, fairly recently, Latino was considered like a race on the census, you know, in different ways. And like, what did that mean? And what did that really mean? And so many of the, the ways we're defined are because of power plays, you know, by people who aren't us, by white folks. And, and, you know, different just logistical maneuvering, you know, and strategizing that has nothing to do with culture or humanity or identity. But we end up having to take on those fights and figure out what that means for us and who we are. And that's another form of oppression right there. So you shifted the conversation to an area I, I was actually very excited to talk about because in yeah. doing research for this interview... And, and knowing, you know, getting to know, know a little bit about you, the person, and, and mm -hmm. obviously the writer, but the person and what you've done since you've arrived in, in this, you know, world in terms of writing, I feel that you've kind of thrown a wrench at the system because you, you've called out, you know, things that, you know, many, either other people didn't call out or, or just told them for their, what, what they were. And one of the things that I found really interesting was how you said that, um, I, I think it was in an, uh, an interview that you gave some, a couple of years ago, how you stated mm. that a lot of times, or all the time, nonfiction is extremely political. That uh, how even like, um, um, whether it's Harry Potter or... Um, uh, um, uh, the Hunger Games. Okay. Um, <laughs> he's he's literally how, just looking at me and snapping his fingers. Be, I don't know. It could be means. extremely political. So talk to us a little bit about how you know uh, a work of fiction that maybe picking it up somebody doesn't necessarily think it's a, pol a p piece of work that it includes politics, but how is that yeah. political? Right. Well, for me, like the realm of, of politics is most easily seen, and when we start to think about context and, and world building. Um, you know, if we're going to go deep with it, like that's that's where it's it comes out clearest. Right. So context means like what gets left in and what gets left out. Right. Like whose stories we decide to tell, whose visions and histories matter and whose don't. You know, so what fantasy fiction has been telling us for uh, basically since its inception in, in like its Western literature format, you know, has been that our lives as people of color don't matter and don't merit um, any kind of real attention beyond being um, sidekicks who are about to die for the benefit of the white hero or bad guys. And that's the message that's been very clearly given, you know, and that's a political message. I think we are a little bit sort of subdued to the notion of like when it's the dominant hierarchical kind of like message that it's not even a message at all. That's how deeply invested in it we become, you know, without even thinking about it. It's like subconscious, right? So like, yeah, take Lord of the Rings, like has an extremely... Um, white power narrative behind it and I don't think that means it's a terrible book or that no one should read it I think it means we should read it with a critical eye and understand it for what it is which is the message that like western civilization is the greatest civilization ever and no other civilization is worth you know it's it's like chancletas right <laughs> so you know hey, chancletas like, have a purpose. A very, even stories that are sort of like trying to be subversive to that if they don't address it they're playing into it still so, you know, I love Harry Potter. Um, Harry Potter changed the world, and Harry Potter addresses a lot of interesting questions of inequality and, and resistance within its narrative, and I love it for that. Um, and Harry Potter is still a white dude saving the world and marginalized brown people on the edges of the story. Um, and I don't think retroactive diversity counts, you know? So so I think it's worth, like, having that conversation and, and having it both, like, in the streets, um, in the essays and that space, and then in the fictional space where... 
And that's where Shadow Shaper came from. Like that's the first book I really wrote mm-hmm. is Shadow Shaper. And I wrote it because I loved Harry Potter, but I had turned away from fantasy for like almost a decade because as a kid, like I couldn't find myself in it. And then I came back to it and I was like, yeah, Harry Potter, this is amazing. And I was like, it's still the same white dude saving the world. What's going on, people? <laughs> and then it was the Hunger Games and it was a white woman saving the world. Although in the book, she's not really white, but whatever. You know, it's like, it's very repetitive. And so as much as I love those series, and I do love them, um, I really wanted to explore like what if, you know, not just the characters were brown and black folks, but the the magic, the rhythms, the world building. Right. Like what if it felt holistic to us in a, in a, in a harmonious and in its entirety and not just in like a pastiche, like throw a brown face on a white story kind of way. Right, right. right. Yeah. But that's a big part of something that I think, you know, you've done quite well with, with uh, Half Resurrection, which is the world building. There, there were moments there were, again, the benefit of having a Hispanic read it. You know, the, the, the pronunciations are great, so thank you um, for that. <laughs> but, you know, there's certain little things and little little phrases and touches where it's clear to me that it's, to your point, it's not just... I took a protagonist whose name was John and I named him Carlos instead, you know, and and called it a day. Like, no, there's actual, there's culture behind everything there. And further than that, your female protagonist is no damsel in distress. So, I mean, that in and of itself, to your point about, you know, oh, well, this person's just here to service a story. Like, she's not. (laughs) I mean, she is in the way that all characters are, but, you know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, that's and that's always been important to me. Most of my books have female protagonists as the main characters. Um, and Sasha goes on to be a main, a main point of view character in the third book. Um, because she is that for important me, to the overall narrative. Don't ruin it for um, me. I need I need to hear it from from your voice. Oh yeah, go on. you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, on that point, you also currently yeah. have a YA series, the Dactyl Hill Squad, and yeah. that is unabashedly, you know, in, in, it's it's you know, I mean, right there on the cover, one of the one of the covers I noticed, aside from the yeah. gigantic dinosaur, was yeah. um, <laughs> you know, it was a brown girl. 
you know, just right yeah. there on the cover, un- unapologetically. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Dactyl Hill Squad? Because I feel like I've kind of yeah. reached out of that one, so I didn't she, <laughs> pick into it. She is actually, um, she's Cuban too, as a matter of fact. A Cuban and, and a dinosaur. Uh, What's not to love? <laughs> exactly. I mean, how, like, we've all, I think, spent most of our lives wishing that we had books about Cuban girls riding on dinosaurs. So, like, <laughs> You've clearly uh, read my wish list. <laughs> so, actually, that's really interesting because it came from a moment when I was researching um, New York history uh, for, a, for a rock opera project back when I was doing more music. And I got a grant from the Brooklyn Historical Society to go into their archives and just, like, have fun and create a project based on something. So I was living in Crown Heights at the time, which used to be called Crow Hill, and that's what some of the elders in the neighborhood still call it, and I thought that was pretty amazing. So I looked up a little bit more history of that. It turns out that Crow Hill was one of the original um, communities, like one of the first autonomous um, black communities in the country. And a lot of people of color um, fled there during a lot of the racial tension that was happening in Manhattan. And I thought that was really fascinating Hmm. because there's so many parallels to today. You know, like Brooklyn at at different times has been a a safe space for people of color fleeing from different kinds of violence. Um, And then gentrification happens and pushes folks out and then there's a cycle again. So that was amazing. And while I was researching that, it led me to look at the um, Colored Orphan Asylum, which was an institution in Manhattan that was burnt down during the Civil War uh, draft riots in 1863. And I was reading this book called um, In the Shadow of Slavery um, by Leslie Harris, which was about that period of time. And there was like one paragraph in there that was about um, a family of, I think, six Cuban girls who were dropped off in this orphanage mysteriously and then whisked away again a couple months later. And and basically they figured they were probably taken back to Cuba and they thought they were kids from a plantation because their father was listed as the same and their mother was all their mothers were all different. So that's all we know, you know, it's this one little moment. And the only reason we know it is because um, a historian found that and decided it mattered. Again, context, right? And put it in her book. And, 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 And even that is like, it's just all we know is a paragraph of information. And it just really struck me because you know what it's like, guys. Like as a Cuban, you're like, oh my God, we were there. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like that's such a moment, right? And like, it blew my mind because I just, I mean, Jose Marti spent time in New York um, right. a little bit later than that. But generally, we just don't hear about Cubans in New York in the 18 anything. Like, it's just not a thing. But yeah. we were there. Um, I found a couple others, and that was fascinating. But that moment really struck me because of that. And just because the narrative itself just sounds like such a cool children's book story. Yeah, no, I have <laughs> so expected like, you to end it with that's like... that's some children's book shit. You know, and then I was like, what if they, what if they escaped? And instead of getting taken back to Cuba, what if they just got out into the streets of New York? And what if they knew how to ride on pterodactyls? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that's like the question that's behind every great book, I think, you know? Also, pterodactyls would probably make the ultimate arroz con pollo. <laughs> now, one... One can can argue that you've become a a bit of an activist, if you will. I guess what I'm curious about is, because this is something that always intrigues me of people that, you know, have such a a clear and outspoken voice when they're given a platform. Is this something that happened organically in terms of you started writing the books, obviously because of who you are and your experiences organically, these were the type of books that you were going to write? Or as you did become a writer and you did now have this platform, you felt the need to speak up about certain things and the way that you saw them? Sure, sure, sure. No, that's a, that's a really good question. And for me, this has always been built into 
who I am as a writer. There was never a question about that. Um, I would say like I was an activist before I was a writer, but I was a writer before I was an activist because they're both true. You know, uh, there was periods in my life when I figured I would just be a writer, and then I became an activist, and then I became a writer again. You know, and so <laughs> the, it's an ongoing cycle. And then I found myself as an activist in the writer community, which I guess is the best of both worlds, right? But I, I knew that I needed to tell these stories. Because that was the root of me going into this work was like I, um, I was working with kids in Bushwick with, with some um, a group of mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican kids in Bushwick and they they had um, Octavia Butler to read they were reading um, Parable of the Sower mm-hmm. and that's a really important author to me because when I was in seventh grade um, my teacher Mrs Middleton gave me an Octavia Butler book sort of out of the blue and I had never heard of her and she's really one of the greatest fantasy science fiction writers of all time. And I just, I always think, like, I was in seventh grade, you know, like, I didn't know, I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life. I don't know how Mrs. Middleton knew that one day I would grow up and, like, need this book to look back at and be like, wow, like, people of color do belong in fantasy. Because that's really what happened. Like, I read the book when I was a kid, and I was like, wow, this is so weird. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then, like, 15 years later, I was working with these kids in Bushwick, and they had that book. And I was like, oh, my God. This is it, right? Because that was at that same moment when I had come back to Harry Potter and was kind of like, eh, love it, but also this and <laughs> thing. And then I was like, wow, and I read all of Octavia Butler. And I was, she has such a complex approach to thinking about power and thinking about race and gender and not in a not in an obvious or, or dichotomous way, but just in a very, you know, very mushy and real and human way that fits into fiction beautifully. And it was just like this big... It was like, go, you can write this, you know, like this is permission to write that complex story that you wanted to tell. And so that's why in Shadow Shaper, um, the kids all go to Octavia Butler High School, which is a a place Mm. I made up, but maybe will one day exist, you know. So it's all to me, it's always been built in. And and that was kind of always the core of the stories I wanted to tell. I knew I wanted to tell our stories and and deal with things like white supremacy and and internalize the shit that we do to each other. Um, you know, that's ongoing themes throughout my work is, is power and, and privilege and, and also the humanity of that and what it does to us. And so it's always been there. Well, now that you mentioned Octavia Butler and how I had mentioned earlier that you threw a wrench at the system, something that really kind of shocked me, but in a way I was like, you go, like, was, you know, how you kind of single-handedly called out the World Fantasy Award um, over their statue. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, right, Lovecraft. on how you yeah. took that head-on to bring yeah. awareness as to the history and, and trajectory. Changed, they changed and, it. and they changed it. So, changed I mean, I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that you probably yeah. received a lot of blowback and opposition for that. I mean, how, how was that whole experience? I, it was amazing. I will say it wasn't... Um, it was... The act itself, that single act, was a part of a much larger movement that had been going on for a while about taking it down. There had been other attempts, and I think those were part of the momentum that led to this one being the one that kind of really took it out. Um, and one thing that's interesting that, to directly respond to the question is that uh, there's a writer, Nettie Okorafor, who had won the award a couple years prior to when the petition went up. And she had put up a blog post about really just saying like she felt a way about having this racist as an award and having his head in her house. Um, and not even saying like, y'all need to take it down or nothing, just like, this is weird. You know, right. acknowledging the tension of that. And that was something that I, I mentioned in the, um, you know, in the petition. And she ended up getting a lot of hell for it. Uh, and I think that really speaks to just how, what it means to be a black woman online, you know, in this day and age and have an yeah. opinion. 
because she caught a lot more of the death and rape threats than I did. Um, and, and that's really, really messed up, you know, because um, at that point she was me. done talking about Lovecraft. Like she didn't have any, she was like, I said what I had to say. That's it. You know? Um, and for me, like, I, it's so weird because people did come at me quite a bit and occasionally still do. Um, and they'd be like, why are you campaigning? And why are you so determined? And why are you doing all this hard work to like take down this hero? And I was like, yo, I, I literally spent 15 minutes uploading <laughs> a, a petition. And then I tweeted it like once, and that's all it took. Blew up, <laughs> that's and I crazy. think that's hilarious. Like I went on later to write about it in the Guardian, and but at that point, like it had already taken on its own momentum. So like, and and I say that to say like humbly, like you know, I, I'm happy that I got to play a part in it and do my piece in this movement. And I think it's hilarious that people think that I walk around like hating Lovecraft all day and like writing entire. People wrote entire, you know, repeatedly wrote blog posts about me and who was I and let me Google him and nobody's ever heard of him and he has no career and all this other ridiculous stuff. Uh, like noted scholars, you know. Oh, and shit. so I thought it was hilarious and ridiculous. And I'm also very pleased that now it's a beautiful tree instead of a racist yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, let, let me, That's a T-shirt waiting to happen. I, 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 would, I, would, I would like to pick your brain on this um, because yeah, now yeah. nowadays, whether it's a, a racist head or well, you know, <laughs> a work that was done by somebody who was you know racist or made racist comments or even something's. Uh, like now that's going on with like I mean I know this is a little bit out of the realm of writing of R. Kelly you know and his abuse allegations and Michael Jackson all that what is your take on the art and you know the artist that's a tough question man (laughs) you know I've been thinking so much about it it's a great question and I I don't know if I have a direct answer because I just like go in circles in my head but I will say that like Almost, I think, more important than that answer, whatever I do or don't feel about it, is, like, understanding the history of, like, you know what I keep going back to in my head is that quote by Chinua Achebe, which I can't remember exactly. i got to Google it. All but Things it's about, Fall like, Apart, great book. <laughs> All Things Fall Apart, great book, yeah. Yeah, no, but here's a quote about lions telling the history of lambs or something. You uh-huh. know? And, like, what's, what happens when the lion, right. or maybe it's the hunter telling the history of the lion. It's a beautiful quote, and I'm going to bungle it if I try to do much more. <laughs> But it's basically like the idea of the victor telling the story and right. getting to tell the story and, and then destroying the story by telling it to make themselves look good. And that's what I keep thinking about in this era of like understanding just how deeply entwined um, entertainment and literature is with people who are abusive in one way or another. I think like that's what's fascinating and tragic about this is understanding that truth, which actually we've always known because mm-hmm. none of this is new information it's just being repeated at a much louder volume and decibel now. Right. And so we're understanding it differently because it's coming at us in a mu- you know, much more frequently and, and with much more um, urgency to it. But none of it's new. You know, we've always understood these things to be true, that like Hollywood is a very sexist and scary place full of like sexual assault. Like that's not a new thing. Um, and we've just kind of accepted it because I think because we didn't think it could change. Right. And then as men, I think, because we benefited from it on some level, you know, on right. some really creepy level. And so, I, you know, like this is a time for unraveling all the stories that we kind of allowed ourselves to believe were true, even though we knew they weren't. Right. Like that there's equality in storytelling. There isn't, you know, like like people who aren't men uh, have been routinely kept out of the process by people who are men. 
And that's the story that I think we need to really look at hard and, you know, on the one hand, look back and see, like, how has that affected, like, literature as a whole, cinema as a whole, you know, how would it have been different if, if, if it hadn't, if that hadn't been the case, if it hadn't been about, it's hard to let go of our heroes. And right. I struggle with that still, you know, a, a lot with different things. Yeah. Um, but I also think, like, if that's the price we have to pay to create a world where women feel safe then that's the price we have to pay to create a world where women feel safe. Yeah, you know that what when you're saying, as you were saying this, um, this past weekend, Ish and I went to here in Miami, the Miami Film Festival, and we saw a movie called This Changes Everything, which is a documentary Ooh. regarding women in Hollywood, particularly um, women in the role of directors. And yeah. it, it goes with what you're saying. We knew this. It's not like we didn't know about whether it's the Hollywood casting couch or how Hollywood has degraded right. women. Just and general women discrimination. Out. But to see it in these women talking about it... And and saying their own, you know, right. what they went through, their own First experience time. puts a face to it that yes. obviously gives it a, a, a different perspective because you're right. seeing it directly from the person. And right. and, and it, it was, I mean, I remember when we saw this, again, not that we were shocked, like, oh my gosh, Hollywood is sexist? Like, exactly. <laughs> but it's right, like, right. oh my gosh, this is absolutely horrible. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the times we live in because... I also think there's like there's a difference between what we engage in privately and what we publicly lift up. You know, I may listen to what I listen to when I'm in my room quietly listening to my room. You know, if it's someone who is a rapist, I'm not going to pay money for it. Right. Um, but um, but then but I'm not going to champion that work in the public space. I'm not going to use my platform to give that work any kind of play. And that's that. You know, I don't think like with Lovecraft for example, which is a sort of easier thing to grapple with, I think, because he's dead, first of all. And so he's not making any money off it. True. Um, and second of all, because like, I think his legacy is really clear, first of all. It's very established. And he's had a huge effect on fantasy literature, both for good and for bad. Like, mm -hmm. fantasy literature is, as we've been discussing, a very racist place, you know? And we're just starting to really break that down now by getting our voices out there on different levels, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is his legacy because he was so virulently, virulently, ugh, that word, why do I bother? <laughs> he was so extremely violently racist, you know, even by the standards of the day, which were already pretty freaking racist. So there's that, you know, but then also I think it's, so it's never been like, never, nobody should ever read Lovecraft. Like I've never said that. That's what they accuse me of saying. Right. Um, but what I've said is we shouldn't hold him up as like the pinnacle of our, of our entire well, you should strive genre. to become essentially. There's a big, there's a, there's a lot of space between saying this man shouldn't be the one and only fantasy writer who we have as an actual award, like that's based on their head, which is ugly. Right. Um. And and then saying like, no, never read him. Like, I, you know, you won't catch me saying that because I've read him and uh, I've enjoyed some of his work. I think his prose is terrible, but I think his <laughs> imagination is fascinating and disgusting and and sometimes really useful to us as writers. So you know, we there we have room for nuance in this conversation. Now, this begs the question, you know, in terms of where we are today, you know, whereas you could say there's been some progress made with writers as yourself, um, even like a movie like Black Panther, for example, that was such a hit. And But obviously, whether it's our current administration and now kind of right. this resurgence, at least publicly, 
of racism um, because you know it's something again that we've talked about a lot on the podcast you know people always talk now about like well racism is on the rise I, I think racism has never gone away it's just that people now are a people lot now have Twitter public about it than they were right. before unapologetic about it right. where do you kind of see where we are now in terms of the progress made with you know what you stand for you know being inclusive and, and diversity and diversity where do you kind of see yeah. we are today um, I think you just summarized it really well. I, I agree with what you said. You know, we are in the middle of an explosion of the things that have been underlying, you know, the threads of our country, the fabric of since it's been a republic and since people have invaded this territory and taken over the land, like that's always been a part of it. That's the foundation of this country. And it has been disguised in different ways throughout the history, too. Um, but we've been lying about our past right up until Trump was elected. You know, like even Obama was saying things like, we're a nation of immigrants, you know, based on freedom. And like, none of that has ever been true. You know, it's been much more complicated and bloody than that. Um, and I think our failure to really deal with that bloody history is exactly why we are where we are at right yeah. now. So that, and I also think like the um, the upsurge of, of movements like Black Lives Matter and different groups, you know, the movement for Black Lives and just different groups that are fighting for freedom in different ways in very outrageous and audacious ways. And I mean that in the best way. Um, that was part of the change that we're living through now in terms of like literature too, you know, like when, when we were first starting this struggle a couple of years back when I was working on Shadow Shaper and getting that out and, and different, you know, elements and conversations that were happening online back when organizations like We Need Diverse Books were just popping up as a hashtag. Um, the, the thing that publishing industry people would tell us, and I'm sure this was the same in Hollywood and, and video games and everywhere else where there's an upsurge now. They were saying, oh, you're, these books don't sell, they'll never sell, that's why right. we don't do them, it's about the dollar. We're not racist, it's just that you people don't read. You know? <laughs> right, right, the numbers, it's the like, numbers don't lie. Right, like you really say that in the same sentence, like you're proving how wrong you are <laughs> in the same sentence, okay, cool. But anyway, they were wrong, like that's the bottom line, like look at Black Panther, look at Children of Blood and Bone, The Hate You Give, Hamilton, oh, yeah. all, you know, Luke Cage, like all of which broke all the expectations of them and exploded and sold millions of tickets and copies and everything else. Um, that's a story that matters. And the fact that we were right all along matters. And the fact that there was racism behind the naysayers matters, you know, and those people are still kind of making decisions and, and in charge of stuff in the industry, you know, and they're actually reaping the benefits of, of us being right. Yeah. And that's an important part of this, you know, and also the fact that um, literature is changing for the better because of this work. And I think that's a really exciting thing to be a part of and to witness. Um, and then it's not just one, you know what I mean? Like that I can just like rattle off a whole bunch of stuff. Like, right. look, that last year began with Black Panther and ended with Into the Spider-Verse, which was Such one of the best movie. movies of Such all time. Right. That's like, incredible. And, and that's within that, those are both superhero movies with black leads that show an, an incredible diversity of storytelling techniques and um, culture and different things. And that really goes to show like just how much there is out there and how much more is coming and what a, an amazing moment we're living in. Absolutely. And speaking of how much more is coming, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your book coming out in November, Book of Lost Saints. Yes, yes. yes. So I, I guess it's, it taps in a little bit into your 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 Cuban side, right? If if I remember yeah. correctly, reading the blog, tell us a little bit about the the storyline and and what we can expect. Sure. So the Book of Lost Saints is is narrated by someone who disappeared during the Cuban Revolution, 
and has reemerged as a spirit in 2004 in New Jersey. And she's actually kind of haunting slash watching over her nephew, Ramon, who is a DJ and a hospital security guard. As you and do. He's, you know, <laughs> as one does. As one does, exactly. DJ hospital so, security so, guard, of course. <laughs> right. So we're, so we're watching him from her point of view, and he's kind of like, a, he's kind of an ancient dude. Like, he's a really good DJ, but he doesn't have a very strong engine yet. Because, um, you know, he's in his 20s, and he's just doing his thing. But she needs him to help her access her memories because she can't really, she's just, it's all gone for her. So what happens is she's able to get to them through his dreams. So every night when he goes to sleep or when he takes his naps, because siestas are important, uh, she gives him <laughs> a little piece of her life through his dreams. And so the story jumps back and forth between revolutionary Cuba and modern-ish day New Jersey. And eventually she goads him to go back to Cuba himself to start doing research and find out what happened to her. That's oh, wow. really, really good. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> That's how, I'm I mean, excited about is it. Is it November yet? Because I really want to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. It's, yeah. a, it's, kind of the, it's definitely a book of my heart, and it's very obviously it's just very close to home in a lot of ways, and it's just something I care about deeply. And so I'm really excited to see it in the world. It's also very different from anything I've ever published before. Yeah. No, I mean, some of, the, some of the early books I've, you know, been talking about how it's that – that Hispanic or Latinx, you know, magical realism. And I'm right. not going to, I'm not right. going to lie. I saw, you know, Isabella Allende's name in the same, you know, sentence as, as yours. So, uh, yeah, nice. that's good company that's to cool. be in, yeah. sir. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, and that's a, I think that's a good way to describe it. I'm, all, I'm always a little wary of the way that title gets that, um, sort of genre topic gets used for us, but it is a magical realist book. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. It's well, at least we own something positive, I guess. It's, <laughs> no, we definitely do. And it, and it's real. Like, you know, we, that is from us, you know, and we did that. And I think we should own it, not own it in the sense of exclusively, but take ownership of the fact that, you know, we had a major part in making that uh, tradition in the world, literary tradition. And that's really cool. So, you know, I'm proud to be in that tradition. I was raised in that tradition. My mom is a big literature nerd. I'm a, and, a, and a politics nerd, and so you know, I read mm. Borges and, and and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and everybody as I was coming up, you know. So that was always a big influence. I, from what I from what I've been reading, it's it's pretty evident to some people out there who've had a chance to to kind of touch upon oh, it. So great to hear. So Daniel, thank you so much for being on. Pero let me tell you, um, and much. Uh, success to you and all your endeavors. I mean, it was really, really awesome. Thank yeah. you. Can't wait for November, man. All right. Take care, you guys. I'll talk to you again, I'm sure. All right. Bye. 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 And we're back. Everybody feel a little more awakened, a little more woke? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Well, I am socially conscious, so. But you know what, though? I'm it, selectively socially conscious. But you know what, though? What what I really like about people like him, mm-hmm. and even, pe- even you and I, you and I and him could so easily pass. Yeah. We yeah. could. Well, we you, could you specifically. We could so easily pass, but we choose not to. We wear it on our sleeves. Yeah. Because it's like no 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 no. That's just not who I am. No 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 me don't know. No. No 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 no. We we walked too many blocks at Calle Ocho <laughs> to try to be uh, Oh Calle Ocho. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, to our listeners who are in Miami, uh, <laughs> you know what we Calle didn't Ocho talk is. about this in the beginning, but we were at Calle Ocho this week. Um, yeah. And for those of you who don't know Calle Ocho, so Calle Ocho is at one point it was like the 
country's biggest block party. Right. I don't know if it still right. is. It's like a street fair. And, and originally in the 60s, it started off as a Cuban street fair to kind of like... Similar to like the San Gennaro Festival in New York, I would say. Okay. Um, <laughs> where like Cubans that were exiled would get together to kind of like celebrate their culture. In years, it... Um, it diversified to like other Hispanics. Mm-hmm. So now it's kind of like a Latin festival. But for us here in Miami, we kind of know that in the last maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 Give years, Cariocha has gone really downhill. Not in terms of pop- uh, popularity. Uh, popularity. I mean, it's still as popular as ever. And there's still like oh, it's thousands and I mean, thousands we had of people to navigate that go. Around many I people. just, the people that go there, I don't really know where they live in the city because I never see them. Like, I never see them in the mall or, like, a Publix. So interesante. It's like creature features. It's like, <laughs> pero, like, oh my god. It's like, look at what you're wearing. Oh my god. Look at look at how you're... Uh, it's... Es metralla, as my mom would say. I choose to go with son interesante, pero... But nonetheless, we think we thank Telemundo for having us. Uh, yes. We were at their VIP yes. section, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, it was a great event that Telemundo put on, and also yeah. iHeartRadio. Well. We were at their VIP section as well, um, and we had a great time, and they had a wonderful, wonderful setup. Uh, Unfortunately or unfortunately, depending on <laughs> the way that you see it, the Telemundo VIP section was at one end of Calle Ocho, and the iHeartRadio was literally at the end. Like, it ended. Polar opposites. Fair, and we walked the entire thing. And during the entire thing, I was like, pero, what is... Oh and, it, and it's not like you and I haven't been in, you know, circumstances. Right, right, but, right. right people out there you right, know what i mean right. uh but yeah this was uh this was certainly interesting so those of you who wondered if Cayocho has cleaned up their act no it's more ratchet than ever <laughs> so welcome to miami <laughs> yeah. and we embrace it full-heartedly yep and after walking so much in Cayocho, we i'm so, thirsty yeah well we were exhausted afterwards so I, that makes total sense exhausted and thirsty so yeah. who do, do you have do you as your first? last coke my last Coke is a little is a is a is a self serving kind of personal last Coke. So okay, you want to go first? No, tell me yours. All right. So obviously, you know, you and I have this podcast, and we're up and down everywhere together. But you know, sometimes circumstances are what they are, mm-hmm. and so we have to divvy up and divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Now, whenever that happens, I strong arm is a hard word for it, but I always drag along my boyfriend Jose. To all these events. Are you giving Jose the last Coke? I am giving Jose to the, the last Coke. To the yay! <laughs> yeah, I am giving Jose the last Coke because you know what? This isn't his project. You know, this it's is not ours. his shtick. It's not his shtick, but he has he's very supportive. And, you know, whenever you can't make it to something, he's right there with the camera, you know, just humoring me and helping and taking pictures and videos and all that to the point where he has named himself our uh, director of PR operations. Oh, well, yeah. Which, it was about time we had one. It's perfect because we didn't even have to pay him, so it yeah. works. So, yes, I want to give my last soda to my boyfriend for being just, Yay. you know, for Yay. being supportive. Are we giving him a regular Coke or a Diet Coke or a Zero Coke or... I'm going to divert a little bit and I'm going to give him an Eat on Bed. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. A soft drink. Yeah. So, Jose gets our last Coke of the Desert. Yes. Yes. So, my last Coke of the Desert is really weird. I'm just going to go with it because I saw it yesterday and I hadn't seen it in like a year. And George Stephanopoulos. No, and I just, I fall apart every time I watch this movie. Like, literally fall apart. It's 500 Days of Fucking Summer. You know, it's like, that movie 
That movie, it's That's like a if, great movie. It's like if you get a knife and you stab me over and over and over, you put a gun. Coño. And you know what? And yeah, you keep coming back to it. I can't stop watching that movie. I love it. Ha, ha, listeners, have you watched 500 Days of Summer? Hey, do again. Don't give me that bullshit nonsense argument that people make. Oh, but she told him. But she did. Uh, no, wait, she spo- did. Should, wait, spoiler. I don't care. That movie's 10 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, you, you know what? You deserve to get spoiled. <laughs> you know what? No. No, no. Because yes, she does tell him right, okay, she's very that she's very upfront. I see. But she knows how he feels about her. He knows that he loves her. That is the love of his life. Oh yeah, so that. when they go to Millie's wedding, she gets all up and close up up and uh, personal with him. She falls asleep in his arms. She puts is you know her her head on his shoulder and they have a beautiful date at Millie's wedding and there he is in the train with that look that he's like, Oh my girl, I got my love back. I got my girl back. And no, only to then, you know, next week invite him to a party where it's reality versus expectation oh. and Darian loses a shit. You know, it's like, I watch... That's the director's cut. I watch that part of reality versus expectations and I'm like, I'm turning into a woman. It's like, I'm turning into a chick. I will say, I love that movie on its own. But what I love about that movie is I love movies and, and programs and things that only focus on like maybe two or three characters mm-hmm. where you don't have a whole cast yeah. because it either you believe in these people or you don't because there's nothing else there to, to mm-hmm. kind of distract you so mm-hmm. and they do that so fantastic I mean and what well. she tells him at the end yeah what I was never sure of with you <gasps> it's like if I didn't like Zoe Deschanel so much you know and Jess it's like I would freaking punch her in the face like no don't don't She's adorable. Don't punch her in the face. <laughs> that movie is so good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I know somebody who watched that movie who thought it was stupid, underrated, and a waste of time. But anyway, I hope everybody... Enough, enough talk about Wilfred Brimley. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed episode 54 with our yeah. special new announcer. <laughs> yes, yes. Our new announcer. We pay him in cookies. In cookies. In mini chips ahoy. Um, but as always, we hope you listen, laugh, and learn. And remember to grab your pastelito, your croqueta, and your jupiña. Yep. And, and don't forget to listen to our friends because we have not been mentioning the Geek Pro Network in the no, last couple we episodes. We've been you know, I was, I, was, I was telling you, you need to put a little post in there. I know. I know the way that... The way that uh, they do the for us, do. you know, yeah. that they have yeah. the courtesy of doing yes. for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Geek Pro Network, you gotta listen to our primas and mamas in Merlot. Also, you know, Mount Geekmore, Woobro, uh, Shiver, um, Mr. Multiverse. I know they have a couple of newer guys on there who I don't recall off the top of my head because I don't have the paper, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, please give, a, give our... Uh, Podcast and, network and I have to tell you that in that in the Geek Bro Network that we're part of, there I mean there really is something for everyone. Yeah, seriously, if you don't find what you're looking for, I mean you're like Bono. Yeah, damn it, Bono. He still hasn't found what he's looking for. Yeah, but that's part of the process of you too. Anyway, everybody, have a great <laughs> week. See you guys next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 